Hello and welcome to another episode of Roy's Cast, the official podcast of the Ridings of Yorkshire Society. We are your hosts, Johnny Farley and Sam Wright, and today we are joined by Jane Tolleton, who's come all the way from New Zealand to talk to us about her research on Mary Taylor. Jane, how are you? Good, thank you, Johnny. Really excited to have you on the episode. I know we've got a few people who are excited to hear it as well. So let's start us off. Tell us a bit about yourself, Jane. Well, I did a history degree and um, then I was a journalist, became a journalist, worked on newspapers and magazines. And I think that sometime in probably the early 1980s, I read Mary Taylor's letters. Joan Stevens in New Zealand had collected her letters to Charlotte Bronte, Ellen Nussie mainly, um, into a book. And as a result, actually, I 20 years ago, I went into business inspired by Mary Taylor. Because in this book, she talks about in the letters about how exciting it is to have opened a shop in Wellington and she did that to fund a writing career and so I've been doing the same for the past 20 years. What's interesting is that I fell into a kind of black hole of running a business and so I could sort of see how she would have done that too, how she would have enjoyed running that business and she would have thought every year she could make more money, do things better. And so I just had a distinct angle on Mary Taylor because of that. And it was really because of COVID that I ended up going off to do an MA late in life and I've just done a thesis on her. Right, yeah. No, it's really interesting. And um, your story about how she sort of inspired you to get into the position you are now is, is really interesting. And, and I think it's kind of one of the only times I've heard of something like that, of someone being so inspired by a historical figure to sort of emulate their story and then and then work on them. Um, so for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with Mary Taylor, could you tell us a bit about sort of her life story almost, a sort of spark notes, as it were, version. Yeah, well, Mary Taylor was born in 1817 in Gomersal, so very near here. And she was in a, born into a family that had a woolen mill, but they had sort of um, gone into austerity mode from the mid-1820s because their small bank that they ran in association with their business went bankrupt, as many banks did in the mid-1820s, these little banks. and But even in spite of that, Mary Taylor and her sister Martha were sent to Rowhead School in Murfield, and that's where they met Charlotte Bronte. And so sh Mary Taylor is known as Friend of Charlotte Bronte, and the two books about her, Joan Stevens' one and then Joan Bellamy's one, Joan Bellamy, uh, a woman from Yorkshire, um, both of them have the subtitle Friend of Charlotte Bronte and that's how she's best known. And so she, after that, she and her sister went to a quite posh school in Brussels in the early 1840s, so they were in their early 20s then. And Charlotte Bronte and her sister Emily went to a much less posh one. Um, and then Martha... Taylor, Mary's younger sister, died at that school of cholera. And Mary didn't change her plan, which was to go to Germany and work. And she worked as a um, teacher in a boys' school, which kind of outraged Charlotte Bronte, who didn't approve. She thought, look, you'll ruin your reputation working with boys. You'll be working with girls. And so, but she did earn enough to um, actually save money. And she also took lessons herself in algebra, um, the piano, 
and German. And so she had these kind of saleable skills. When she left in 1845 to go to New Zealand, and she joined her youngest brother, Waring Taylor, there, um, and she decided to go into business there after she'd been there about five years with her cousin, Ellen Taylor, who turned up. So they opened a general store. And if you think about a Western with the general store, very wooden, and it would have clothing and it would have <laughs> all sorts of stuff, big sacks of, that's what it would have looked like. And that was in Wellington, which is where I come from. And um, she ran that store for uh, eight and a half years. Her sister, um, her cousin died actually of tuberculosis after she'd been there less than two years. And, and Mary continued and she made a lot of money. And that has become obvious recently in my MA because actually I um, explored a story that has not been explored before, which is that her brother Waring went bankrupt in uh, 1884 and against her name in the creditors listing is £3,000. So he took £3,000 and I'm saying that is the, that's what um, she saved from that shop. Mm. And it disappeared in her brother's pocket. She came home in 1860 after she'd been in New Zealand for 15 years and um, so she was here. He sold off all her property in the 1860s and then he didn't invest that money, mm. I don't think. So this is a theory. There's nothing to um, there's nothing to from her that says that, except that sitting there in the newspaper columns in the bankruptcy is three thousand mm. pounds. When she came home, she inherited three thousand um, pounds, and this is noted by it's noted by um, Joan Bellamy. It, it's noted by Grace Hurst, who was a younger friend of Mary's who was interviewed about her by a relative of Mary's in 1931. She says she came home. She got the inheritance that her father had wanted to leave to her, finally got it when she got home. And then when she died, she had £3,000 in the bank. So the, I'm saying that's the inheritance. And then there's this missing money, and that's wearing. Mm. Quite dramatic then, quite a sort of exciting story almost what um because you mentioned how this is is your sort of new theory what has it been previously thought about that situation with with her um being involved in that or wearing going bankrupt is there much of the time made about it sort of talking about mary taylor or talking mm -hmm. about the family well what happened at the time is that wearing went bankrupt and then two months later after he'd appeared in the bankruptcy court he was um arrested he was um, sentenced on, uh, charged with a few um, fraud charges, so they would have been looking for stuff that they knew could stick, because of course with this kind of, he was running a Ponzi scheme, just like Bernie Madoff in New York. So you've got this kind of question, how much money's involved? There's no, he had mm. no account of all this. And so um, they found some, um, charges that, that they knew they could get, in, that they had enough evidence on, partly because he stood up in the bankruptcy court and, it, and sort of told them how he'd done it, almost as if he was saying, wasn't I clever getting away with it for that long? Bernie Madoff did the same kind of thing. He never felt sorry for the people he'd ripped off. In Waring Taylor's case, it included a sister-in-law, his dead wife's uh, sister, whose husband had been murdered mm. on his farm in the Rangitiki. And so... 
like he'd stolen from all sorts of people. Anyway, he was convicted on these fraud charges and he was sentenced to five years hard labour and he was in jail for about three years actually. So what happened after that with the family is that his daughters um, insisted that he had not intended to defraud anyone. So the kind of local mythology built up around Waring in the Rangitiki area where they were living about what's now about three hours drive north of um, Wellington, is that he didn't intend to defraud anyone. He just, got into a, he just got into a muddle. And so Mary Elizabeth Taylor, who was his daughter-in-law, wrote a memoir in the 1930s saying he was a generous, lovable man but had no head for business. This is not the case. <laughs> he had enough head for business to have stolen a lot of money from a lot of people. So that mythology, though, has gone into the historical interpretation. And the reason is that a man in um, eight, uh, 1976 wrote a book called Why a Rapper? And in it he said, Waring Taylor was a kindly, well-meaning muddler. So I thought to myself, why does this guy, um, why does he think what the family thinks? I wonder if he knew the family. And he did. <laughs> so his father was a foot was personal friends with Waring's grandchildren, the Dalrymples and the Rangitiki, and so I could, um, that was, yeah, that's why he kind of spun the family mythology. And then another man wrote the only um, article that's been written about Waring, and he too repeated this phrase, a kindly, well-meaning muddler. And that was in 1991, and as a result of that, what I can see is that people who write about both Waring and Mary, and these are just little snippets and other things. No one's really seriously written a book recently. What they tend to do is just completely accept that Waring was a muddler, didn't mean to get in, you know, to do anything wrong, but that Mary um, actually helped push him into bankruptcy. And that's because Brad Patterson, who wrote this article in 1991, specifically pinpoints Mary and their cousin George Dixon and says that these two asked for their money back and um, because they were relatives, he's written, they, they had blood no thicker than water and that once they had done that, wearing um, destitution, he calls it, was inevitable. So he pinpoints them. Now, in fact, I'm just going to go back a step into the 1870s. George Dixon, a really interesting character, and some people will know about him because he was a mayor of Birmingham and um, also a member of parliament. And he was a cousin of the Taylors, and he invested a lot of money with Waring. And so did his great friend and business associate, Thomas Lloyd of Lloyd's Bank. So these are the kind of people, if you're going to make money from someone, it's not Lloyd's Bank. So they asked for their money back in the 1870s. They clicked on that Waring was not what he seemed to be. And it was really, um, Brad Patterson's kind of got it right. George Dixon and Thomas Lloyd asking for their money back. Yeah, that's the long reason he went bankrupt because he was stealing from other people to try and pay them. And he couldn't pay them out, but he was taking in more money. So that's why I'm saying he's running a Ponzi scheme. So I think you, you mentioned a little bit about writing a book about this, but also doing it as a thesis, an academic project. So what are the, because I know we've got a few people that come to the conference and, and look at some of the Roy's output and are not from 
traditional sort of academic background so what have been the differences in terms of doing it as a book outside of academic pressures if you like or doing it as a thesis what have been the merits i suppose or what the experience that you've had of those two different sort of ways of doing history well that is a great question because i did have a, a difficulty in my thesis which was that my su- my supervisors would not believe that wearing was a fraudster and so my supervisor actually said to me when I'd handed in that chapter, um, I'm not going to look at this in any detail because he was so opposed to that view. And so I went to lawyers, you see, because in a way your question is, what about coming from journalism? But you could equally ask me, like, what about coming from a small business background. I've been running my own little business. It's a bed and breakfast, so it's not a big business. Three rooms called Book Lovers B&B. And, but you see, I look at that kind of thing. I go to lawyers if I have a problem and go to the accountants. So I have that background now, which I wouldn't have had 20 years ago. And so when the supervisor was, they were telling me, oh yeah, but there's no evidence that he had intent. I go to the lawyers. Lawyers say, nah, if he was convicted, he had to have intent. They had to have proven intent. We wouldn't have been convicted. Whereas my supervisor is saying, well, you will have to prove that he, you know, what you're saying. I'm thinking, yeah, well, in journalism, if, somebody, if it's proven in the court, Supreme Court will do us. It's like we'd say, yeah, he's a fraudster because he's convicted in the Supreme Court. So I found this quite challenging, really. What was challenging about it was that I didn't want to challenge them. So for a while I thought, I'm just going to drop out because it's either them or me. And then I thought, well, it has to be me. <laughs> it is quite funny, isn't it? Now, the thing about being a journalist, it's interesting. I'm old. I'm 66. So when I, I trained, I did a degree, then I did this journalism diploma, and then I was in a newspaper oh, the, in the old days. Now, when you handed in your copy on copy paper, they would, the chief reporter would shout at you from halfway down the room, like, how do you know this is true? Like, where's, where's the source for this? Like, where's the backup? Get another quote. Find this out. Make another phone call. You didn't just say this stuff. So I'm very interested by these guys in academia who aren't backing up what they say. If they think he had no intent, they should be proving it to me. They should. So when I talked to my um, a copyright lawyer who's Australian, He's, he's tough, he's Australian. He, he says to me, <laughs> well, are they saying the court's wrong? Yeah, they were saying the court was wrong because, of course, he had to have intent. He says it's mens rea. So, yeah, that was a fascinating thing. And some people say to me, you know, like, I've done books before. In fact, I've done a biography um, before. So people said, right, you could have just written it without doing a degree. But uh, the fact that my back was up against the wall like that that was brilliant for me because it meant I had to push it. I had to find out. So it worked well for me in the end. And I suppose in, in in challenging those those perceptions, what are what has been your big sort of source material base? I know you've you've we've had long conversations about how many times that you've been across to, to Yorkshire and to Leeds particularly. So what kind of source material is is helping sustain these these sorts of arguments? Well, the most important one is the digitised newspapers. And to be fair, these guys, like Joan Stevens, did an incredibly good um, book, really good notes in her book of of Charlotte Bronte and um, Mary Taylor's correspondence. But if she'd had the digital newspapers, she would have got that story. See, she went to the family. They didn't tell her. 
that's what's interesting. Whereas, and I went to the family too and um, was asking them the questions. And, of course, they were telling me that what they were told as kids, you know, they were told that myth, you know, oh, well, we were told that oh, someone added up the figures wrongly or one, one lot of them, because there's a lot of family, one lot said, um, oh, well, we were told that, like, the accountant, he led him into trouble, really. You know, he's a bad kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I'd say newspapers, number one. Number two, archives, because Archives New Zealand actually had the power of attorney agreements signed by Waring with Mary Taylor, 1860. About two or three days before she got on a boat and left New Zealand, she signed a power of attorney agreement where she just signed over all of her property, all of her money into Waring's hands. Dumb. And then the other one with George Dixon's one's there, John Taylor, so that's their older brother who moved to New Zealand in 1870. He had signed a power of attorney agreement in the 1860s. And um, yeah, Dixon, Thomas Lloyd's one's there, so they're all there. And in fact, with Thomas Lloyd, like I live at the, t I live on Mount Victoria and you go down the road and there's a little street that was called Lloyd Street and that's where he owned what we what were called town acres. So they're quite big chunks of land that could be um, turned into properties, um, sections for housing. And Mary Taylor owned one and a half town acres when she left the country and her shop and the rental house that she had built three years after she got there. So she had a lot of property. We're worth millions today. So, I mean, a bit more, maybe a bit more about the book itself. So, I mean, what are some of the favourite sort of stories that you've come across in, in producing, you know, a work of, of, of that length? Because, I mean, we sort of, in, in my experience of writing history, I've been always, like, narrow-focused at tiny margins. So what is it? what have been your favourite stories when looking at, at, at Mary's life in a much broader sense? So just some of the favourite stories that you've come across? Well, what I'm doing is turning my thesis into a book, so I haven't got that far yet. But what um, there is a great story in there as well. So what I'm going to be saying at the conference is that people have looked at Mary Taylor through women in writing, which is the obvious thing to do because... She wrote a non-fiction book called The First Duty of Women, which is about, um, it tells women to take financial responsibility. And it specifically says, make sure that you are not living on fraud. <laughs> it's quite ironic, really. Um, and she wrote a novel called Miss Miles. And so you can, so I can see now something that other people haven't picked up so far, which is that she used the story of wearing and what happened to her in Miss Miles, which was not published till 1890, and then she died in 1893. But you're saying, what are the other great stories? Okay, there is another one. It's another men and money story, and that is that... So Mary went to New Zealand in 1845. She lived with Waring for three years, and he was running this little trading business, and she would have been working in the shop with him. And then... In 1848, he married. So she actually swapped places with the new Mary Taylor, who was Mary Knox before. So she went and lived at the Knox's house and paid board. And a man came and asked her, will you teach my daughter the piano? Because she, she was advertising that. And this guy's name was William Cooper. And so he was a very interesting guy. He'd been a whaler, been a carpenter on whaling ships, really. He was Scottish. And he um, 
he was keen on her. And you can tell because she wrote to Mary, to Charlotte Bronte, and she said, I am in a sad mess. A rich drover has, um, she says, has asked me to teach his daughter. And now that I'm doing so, he says, um, uh, people are saying, well, why don't you marry him? I mean, that must be what you wanted in the first place. Well, given that he, she couldn't marry him unless he was asking her, I'd say, okay, he's asking her, basically. Or he's asking her landlady or wearing what they think, because he's going to ask her. Now, she didn't want to get married. And she, but her, her sister-in-law, so the next Knox daughter, Margaret Knox, he marries her. She's 20, he's 47. Mm. She, he's got this daughter who's 16, and he clearly said to Mary Taylor, come and live with us. She's 31 because she would be the only adult in the house. So she goes to live with them. She's not a governess. She's not paid. She's a family friend and a relative, really, a relative by marriage. And she lived with them for a number of months. And she comes out of their place determined to run a business. Mm. So I see William Taylor as kind of her business coach, really. I think she looks at him and thinks, look, here's this guy, started with nothing, not not as well educated as me. <laughs> and... Um, by hard work and by kind of keeping the customer satisfied because he, he had a pub and he also had this big cattle farm. Um, he's done it. And she remained friends with the Coopers. You can see that. But one of the fascinating things about the Cooper family is that her, um, her piano pupil's mother, so William Cooper's first wife, was a convict who had stolen silverware as a cook, as a drunk cook in London. She was fired after a few days for being drunk and was transported. Um, yeah, she did nick a, a considerable amount of silverware, it has to be said, not a few forks. But actually she was probably habitual criminal to be sent out. And she um, got there in 1831. She, ma she had this baby, 1832, and she married Cooper in 1833. So my theory on that is that he was out on a whaling ship or something. He had no problem in claiming that child. Loved his daughter. His daughter is like many whalers. I can think of um, oh, three or four whalers who all left land to their daughters as well as their sons. The whalers are particularly um, generous to their daughters, look after them, and um, often married Maori women. So their mm. daughters who are becoming very wealthy were Maori women. And in fact, um, where Waring got caught out is that he, in the end, he was a trustee for trust funds, and one of them was the Rhodes family, and and he had been a captain of a whaling ship, William Rhodes, came from Yorkshire, and um, he had a daughter by a Maori woman, and then he had two, we say Pākehā, so two, like, English background wives neither of them had children and the little girl came to live with them so and that little girl became a very wealthy woman and wearing nicked her money and her stepmother's money and the stepmother Sarah Rhodes she took him to court so the person when they when um Brad Patterson saying Mary Taylor you know precipitated oh no Sarah Rhodes played that role she said I want my money back 20,000 pounds a lot of money. Um, I think it was 20,000 with the two of them combined. So Mary Ann is the stepdaughter. 
And so that tipped Waring in the end, actually. Mm. So it's, it's really, um, I don't see Mary asking for her money back at all. And she got a very big fright, I think, when she found out that her money was gone. Mm. And the, how we realise that is that um, her lawyer, William Carr, in Gomisal, um, wrote in his um, notebook, uh, which is in the Kirkley's archives, he wrote, um, Mary Taylor told me her brother had gone, her brother's business had failed in New Zealand. She blames his... Um, indulged children, his extravagant children. So I see that as Mary Taylor saying, I'm not talking about it. I'm mm. not dissing my brother in Yorkshire. Like, And that's why, um, coming back to your question about what people knew and when they knew it, Ellen Nussie didn't know it. So that's her big friend with, who was also friends with Charlotte, who um, wrote about her after her death. Ellen Nussie lived for four years after Mary Taylor and said she was a recluse. And because Ellen Nussie's painting herself as I'm the big friend of Mary, of Charlotte Bronte. There isn't mm. anyone else, <laughs> basically. So yeah, I see that. I see. Um, I see Mary Taylor as a kind of Catherine Kaywood character. If you've seen Happy Valley, mm. like so she's straight, she's tough, she's fair, and. You know, she doesn't go around smiling at everyone. Mm. So people don't see her as a very amenable character. Um, but, like, she gives good advice. She's helpful. Like, when she left her business in New Zealand, she leased it to her shop assistant, Margaret Smith, who had a sister, Susan Smith. So um, she's facilitating a business for two other women. Then she writes her book saying, look, take control of your financial lives. Do not listen to these fathers and brothers and so on who say that it's not respectable for you to work. They're the people who land you in poverty You're by dying or by losing all their money. <laughs> I mean, it is quite like, that's what's nice about it as a book. Once you've got William Cooper in there and you've got Waring Taylor nicking her money, you've got a much bigger story mm. in terms of a story than we've had before. Again, really, really interesting stuff, and it should be quite a quite an exciting feedback at the at the conference on on Saturday to, to what you're saying. Um, I was wondering if, because you've mentioned in previous correspondence about her involvement in almost the the suffragette movement in New Zealand or the proto suffragette movement. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit, um, sort of, because that's what we we've we've got your talking with on Saturday, so it kind of fits the yeah. theme almost. But yeah, if you could just touch on that briefly, that'd be. Great. Well, Mary Taylor doesn't seem to have spoken out at all in New Zealand, which is completely understandable. I mean, she's running a business. She's sort of open to all comers, and she's not going to um, jeopardise that. But she was um, very interested in women's lives. Like, she's, she's talking about this book, which becomes The First Duty of Women, uh, before she opened the shop, talking about it to Charlotte Bronte. So then she comes home in 1860. She's got this book partly written. She's got her novel partly written. And then she started writing magazine articles for Victoria Magazine in London, edited by Emily Faithful. And so the chapters of First Duty um, go in, in as magazine articles first. In 1868, she wrote an article about suffrage replying to a bloke who was dissing the whole idea kind of thing. And she would be arguing on the John Stuart Mill lines, like who had put in the um, amendment to the Second Reform Act, like mm. women should have the votes, they're here, they're 
you know, part of society and making money, paying taxes, all that. So that's the part of the movement that she would, was in. Um, she's the first New Zealand woman to write about suffrage, mm-hmm. 1868. And then two women did the next year in New Zealand. So if she didn't write about it in New Zealand, mm-hmm. people wouldn't have known, probably. But there she is. And I would call her a New Zealand woman. The reason for that is that today, if, you were, if a woman lived in New Zealand for 15 years, we call her a New Zealand woman. Now, New Zealand women got the vote in 1893. So that's the year Mary died. And she right. died in end of March, I think it was. And then um, we got the vote that September. So, and the person, the, own, the last man standing in the suffrage story is um, Sir John Hall from <laughs> Hull, <laughs> who was the person who really pushed suffrage in those final years in the in the house and actually that is one of the topics that I've been looking at in detail in the past few years because um, in New Zealand the reason that we got suffrage so early is that men were on board with that part with the John Stuart Mill part of the movement we never got to the violent bit (laughs) we um, the biggest um, organization behind suffrage would be the um, Women's Franchise League it was only started in 1892, and we got suffrage in 1893. So it was, we, before that we had the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and they were pushing for the vote, but they're pushing for the vote be basically because they want prohibition. Mm. So um, we've got a different story. We never got, right, no one ever chained themselves to a railing. Nobody marched down a street. Mm. Um, it was very, I see three movements for the vote. And they've all got men and women in, both men and women in them. Yeah, so quite different to what we, we have here. And, and yeah, again, should be quite an interesting uh, panel with, with everyone else talking about the different aspects that we've got in Yorkshire of that. Um, and again, it's just really interesting to hear throughout everything you've said about how tied this individual and her family are between Yorkshire and New Zealand. It's sort of something that I've never really considered personally um, about sort of emigres and, and whatnot. And Again, is it just really, really interesting stuff to sort of be shown by you and, and presented by you? Um, yeah, and it, it very engaging as well. Well, it would be interesting if people at the conference or anyone really has got a a view on, like, what could could Mary Taylor have opened a shop in Yorkshire? Probably mm. not. Mm. <laughs> probably in her class among her friends. Probably not. Um, but over there, see her brothers, John and um, Joe gave her loans which they later forgave so Mm. um, they helped her Uh, it wasn't unusual for women to run businesses in New Zealand so that's another reason why um, why it would be easier for us to get vote because we were like women did that Mm. yeah obviously part of um, of business life and so one of the things that has been probably a bit of a misunderstanding about Mary is that people would think, well, she was an aberration, but she wasn't an mm. aberration. Like um, she did better than better than maybe anybody, mm. but other women did have businesses. Yeah. Oh, what I'd like to know is, <laughs> does anybody <laughs> got any photos of Mary Taylor? Right. How come there's no photos, no drawing? There's one. Mm. It's on the front of Joan Bellamy's book, and she's in her seventies. Right. So. Um, 
it's one of the things about the family fallout. You see, after Waring went to prison and all that, um, you don't find the family putting forward stuff about Mary. Mm. Where's the little memoir mm. about Mary from the family? There isn't one. Where's a letter? Where's a diary entry? Yeah. You can't find any of that. So people in Yorkshire might have letters. They might have something. Mm. Yeah, well, in fact, we've, we've had someone reach out to us um, as a conference with a photo of, of one of their relatives in, involved in a, in a suffrage march in, in Leeds. So there, there's, there's quite a high possibility that someone does have the stuff you're looking for in Yorkshire. And um, yeah, hopefully this, this reaches them and hopefully they can get in touch with you. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Uh, on that note, where can they get in touch with you if they do have it, if they, if they would like to share information with you? Um, the easiest email is probably info at booklovers.co.nz. That'll Great. get to me. Thank you. All right. Um, thank you very much, Jane. That was a, a really exciting podcast. And again, I, I really look forward to seeing you talk about it at the conference on Saturday. Um, unfortunately, if you're listening to this, you have missed the conference, um, but you've got this to listen to instead. Um, so th thank you once again, Jane, for coming on. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Sam. Uh, and yeah, uh, all you listeners at home, stay tuned for another episode soon.